Welcome to the Leaders Who Care, a podcast powered by Dynamis Group. We are here to give the stage and support to those committed to create a positive and lasting impact, way beyond the profits and margins, the leaders of the world who care for others and serve a bigger purpose. Join us on the journey of creating a better, more caring world. And now to your host, Stoyan Yankov. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure and honor to welcome today uh, David Allen, who's the author of Getting Things Done, the creator of GTD Methodology, a living legend in the world of productivity. David, how are you today? I'm terrific, Stoyan. Thank you for the invitation. Delighted to be here. It's been a pleasure to follow your, your journey over the past uh, in my lifespan, uh, shorter, but uh, you've been doing work for over 40 years with uh, the concepts and principles of GTD and previously with uh, different management consulting practices. Could you maybe lead us into your story? Who's David Allen? What uh, have you done during these years? And, and what are you excited to do today? Well, you know, if we had about three or four days, maybe I could, you know, explain all that. But I'll try to give you a very little micro version of, of what that was about. Uh, I was very much interested in sort of exploring the universe, God, truth and the universe and, you know, how things work out there. Philosophy major. And then I became a history major studying history of thought, history of culture was in graduate school in Berkeley in California in 1968, decided that graduate school and academia was not where I was gonna find my own enlightenment. So I dropped out and then went on to a serious personal exploration game. Uh, martial arts, got a black belt in karate, studied meditation, spiritual practices, all kinds of gurus that I met and you know, uh, just finding out what they knew. Of course, nobody was paying you to do that. <laughs> so I still had to pay the rent. So I just wound up helping a lot of friends with their businesses. They, they seemed to know what they wanted to do. And I wasn't that particularly interested in the material stuff. I just needed to you know, pay the rent so I could you know, keep doing, keep my own self-exploration going. And uh, I became a pretty good number two guy. I would just walk in with what people were doing with their business and look around and say, how much easier can I make this? Because quite frankly, Stoyan, I'm the laziest guy you ever met. Uh, and so I just kept saying, is there some way I can get out of here earlier? Is there some, some way we can do this faster and easier? Now they call that process improvement. I just said, you know, lazy. Anyway, so uh, then I'd go, I'd help them sort of arrange how they were doing what they were doing and then it started to work better and I got bored. <laughs> so then I got another job. That's why if you look at the research, my Wikipedia, you say I had 35 jobs by the time I was 35. That's why I just would fix things, get bored and move on. Then I discovered they pay people to do that. They call them something consultant. Oh, oh my gosh, couldn't even spell it. Now I am one, you know? So then I hung up my shingle, Allen Associates, 19, gosh, 1982 probably. And I started to say, okay, if I if it wasn't clear how to help somebody, it'd be really nice to know if I had some model or some sort of principles that I could apply to help people do what they were doing better, easier, you know, whatever. And so I discovered those for myself personally. And I had a couple of great mentors and number of things from different angles that I started to pull together my own thing. I'll give you an apology right now to anybody watching this right now. I've never had any formal traditional education in terms of business psychology or time management. All of my stuff was just experience-based. 
maybe that's why you know I came up with something new that somebody hadn't really come up with before because I didn't have any precondition you know about what it needed to be and so I found techniques I didn't wake up one morning with GDD <laughs> believe me they were small little pieces I'd, I'd use and say wow that really helps and I had a really good mentor that I worked with very closely for a couple of years he was a, a, a very experienced uh, management consultant in organizational change. And he had come up with a couple of techniques that were critical for working with executives. One about emptying their head, because a lot of them had a lot of old business banging around in there that was keeping them from being able to focus on where they wanted to go in the future. And so, you know, Dean taught me the idea of getting everything out of your head and deciding next actions on all that stuff that had your attention. So those were two key elements that are still core elements of GTD and the getting things done methodology. It's called empty your head, decide next actions on the things that are movable, you know, that you need to move on. So I, I, I cobbled all that together at a certain point and the stuff that worked for me, I turned around and used with my own consulting clients and it turned out it produced the same thing for them. More space, more room, more clarity, more stability, more ability to focus on the meaningful stuff without being distracted by old business or incomplete things that they weren't managing really well. So that became kind of the essence of a lot of what my, my, we didn't call it coaching back then, but it's kind of what it was. You know, I was working one-on-one with executives and, and, and entrepreneurs and so forth in their businesses. But then some, you know, big guy in the corporate training world, you know, head of human resources in a big corporation saw what I was doing and said, wow, David, we need those kind of results in our whole culture. Can you design some sort of a training around this so that we don't, it's not just one-on-one. Uh, we can reach a lot of people maybe with the methodology you've come up with. So I did, and it was quite successful. So I wound up, this was 1983, 84, with a pilot program for a thousand executives and managers at Lockheed in California. And it worked and highly successful. And I suddenly found myself thrust into the corporate training world with what I'd come up with. So fast forward, you know, from then on in the 1980s, 1990s, and so forth, I wound up training thousands of people, you know, just by referral into various organizations from small entrepreneur churches to all to the US Navy to McDonnell Douglas, you know, uh, uh, you know, Citibank, I mean, all kinds of places, I wound up being thrust into doing this kind of training. And my consulting really turned more into executive coaching, working with people in these organizations that wanted to implement this stuff. They caught it, they got inspired by it, but they wanted hands on me desk side with them to help them actually implement this stuff. So that, so thousands of hours, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about the 10,000 hours you need to kind of really kind of be an expert in anything. I probably had 50 or 60,000 hours, literally desk side with some of the busiest people on the planet and actually implementing this methodology, refining it and so forth. And it took me about 20, 25 years to figure out that what I'd figured out was unique and that nobody else seemed to have done it. And so I got some good coaching. I said, David, you ought to write the manual. I went, okay, let me see what I can do. So between 1997 and 2001, when it was published, I then wrote Getting Things Done, which was really a compilation of all the best practices and principles that I had learned in my 25 years and doing all this kind of work. And I had no idea how successful it would be, how popular it would be, because even by that time, there was a lot of noise out there in the time management organization world. So I said, hmm, well, I'll just, I just need to write it so it's done. So in case I get run over by a bus, at least somebody could pick up the manual and, and read how to do it. So there's a, 
and then getting things done. And then that's a whole new chapter from 2001 because it hit a nerve and it became a bestseller, became international. That's why you and I are talking. You know, this thing sort of hit a nerve around around the world. The GTD became this brand that kind of ran out from under us. We never did any marketing. We called it GTD because getting things done, GTD was a shorthand for the book. <laughs> we just said GTD. And it turns out, especially because it hit the tech world, especially when getting things done got into paperback in 2003, uh, it really spread all over the tech world. That was when the blog world was starting and people like Guy Kawasaki and Robert Scoble, who was still at Microsoft at the time, became big fans of my stuff. And they started to spread it out through the tech world. So suddenly we found ourselves thrust into an international world. The book got translated into 30 languages and the world knocking in our door called, gee, David, we need this. And so then the last you know, 15, 20 years, we spent trying to figure out how do we scale this and make this available you know, with quality control you know, to get this methodology to as many people as might want it. So there's a very short version of a very long story story. <laughs> I hope I didn't bore everybody working, you know, watching this. But absolutely anyway, not, was... David. Actually, it's amazing when when you hear the whole story because a lot of people look at GTD and uh, such iconic brands like like this, and they think it kind of just happened. Like what you're describing is a long process that involves a lot of your previous experiences, and and I'm actually curious to hear. How did all these 35 plus jobs that you worked before you become a consultant impacted your work and uh, the way you kind of structured GTD? I don't know. I don't really know. I mean, I learned something from every one of those jobs. I was always quite curious about, well, how does a car work? So I managed a, a, a car restoration company and a, and a gas service station in Los Angeles. Uh, I, I got interested, you know, I, I wound up helping a couple of guys start a restaurant in, in, in LA. So I became the chief cook and bottle washer, you know, and so, but I, then I learned about waitering and I learned about wine and I learned about food. So I've, I've just been quite curious about all different aspects of life out there and, you know, kind of didn't want to tie myself down to any one thing in particular. It wasn't a big strategic plan. I just was, again, bouncing around until I kind of figured out, okay, well, you know, once I ran across what I did as a consultant, I had no idea what I was going to do in my life, but it was in my mid to late thirties until I you know, discovered this stuff and how it worked and how successful it was. So, um, you know, that, <laughs> I don't know if that was an answer to your question, but that's, you know, that was really where that came from. Yeah, I, I think I think that gives some perspective, and I'm also curious to to before we get into the topics about leadership to to hear more about what GTD really is about for the people who haven't uh, been exposed to the system so far. And um, I listened to an interview you did with uh, London Real, uh, brilliant interview, and you guys spoke a lot about uh, this, uh, you know, how the martial arts impacted uh, some of the principles, and remember. A thing that you said, which was really interesting, you said it's about fa how fast can you get clear uh, and cl create clear spaces, which also was similar to the to the short interview we did back in in Austria in Graz, uh, where you said, "I just love freedom of spaces," and I just love this kind of a hint of um, spirituality that you put into the whole productivity, uh, you know description of yours so so how can you maybe elaborate a little bit about that 
Well, I use spirituality in a with a small s, not a capital S. You know, because I'm not a big fan of religions and. But spirituality, meaning the things you can't see that affect the things you can see. So anything that's non-material, you know, I've always been fascinated by that because I figured out, look, I think the world is being run by a lot of stuff we can't see. <laughs> Whether that's gravity or electricity or whatever it is, there's a lot of stuff out there, you know, that sort of make the world work. I said, well, if I could get inside of all of that, that'd really be lazy. If I could just think about something moving and it would move, I go, whoa, wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> Trying to uncover and discover kind of what are the invisible things we can't see, but that affect everything we can. And by the way, I had some background in that because in my academic career, I was studying intellectual history, history of thought. And I discovered, you know, we didn't call it paradigms back then, but the idea of cultural paradigms. You know, the Greeks never had an idea of infinity. They didn't even have a zero. Uh, so, you know, different cultures had different psychic or paradigms that affected how they perceived things, how they perceived the world, and how it affected art and science and mathematics and medicine and science and exploration and, and all kinds of things. And so each culture seems to have its own signature. And I was fascinated by that. So, you know, then in my own personal exploration discovery, we all have our own signatures that then affect how we perceive things, you know, what's reality for us and how we can perform. So that was all that kind of was coming together over all these years in terms of my exploration of this stuff. And again, I'm not, not a particular aspirational or entrepreneurial kind of guy. I'm more an educator than anything else. I'm not even a really good trainer. You know, I'm a good presenter, but I don't have the patience to just hang out with people until they get this stuff. I just define what the get it is. Here's what the game is. And I, that was a lot of what I wound up uncovering over all these years is what's the game about how do you get clear? How do you get clarity? And again, to your point, I'm a huge freedom guy. I don't like being distracted by stuff that I can't do anything about. Anybody like being waked up in the morning by something you can't do anything about? I don't think so. So I just figured out over all these years, I uncovered what are the things I need to do to, 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 to figure out what to do about this? How do I organize that? How do I manage that appropriately? So that then became ultimately what's the essence of what a lot of people are aware of in terms of getting things done. And that's, you know, the basic model about how do you capture stuff that has your attention, get it out of your head, decide what you're going to do about it, what it means to you, create some sort of trusted external brain organizational system that you trust will remind you of the stuff you need to see on some consistent basis and then see it on some consistent basis and reflect and review on all the commitments at the multiple levels you have in life so that you feel comfortable about having a beer or taking a nap or or you know, or writing your business plan whatever you need to be doing so the whole idea was you know here's the big secret and i'll share it with you but don't share this with anybody else is that is getting things done is not so much about getting things done that you you actually will get things done a lot easier and a lot faster but it's really more about doing what you need to do so that you're appropriately engaged with your life so you're present with whatever you're doing you're present cooking spaghetti you're present tucking your kids into bed you're present dealing with that tough conversation you're present with what you need to do to hire the, your vp you know so it's it's really about how do i how do i get uh, my consciousness available to be fully present. That is the most productive state, by the way, to operate from.
when you're not distracted, when you're fully available. So productivity, it's got a lot of baggage to it, story. And as you probably know, everybody thinks productivity, oh my God, I have to sweat more. I'm going to have to work harder. Uh, more to do, to be more productive. I don't need that. And yet productivity simply means producing what you want. If you go on a vacation to relax and you don't relax, that's an unproductive vacation. <laughs> you know, if you have a party and you want to have fun and you don't have fun, that's not a productive party. You know, you want to cook a nice dinner for your kids or your family and it's not a nice dinner and they don't have fun at all, it's unproductive. So productivity simply means achieving some sort of desired result. And that, that desired result could be some internal experience of happiness, relaxation, fun, you know, whatever. But there was no better word than productivity. And, and you know, it's weird about how it gets translated in all these different 30 languages. You know, <laughs> they're strange. Yeah, being, being, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what they are, you know, in, in your languages and your native languages, Toyon. But even getting things done, it was hard to translate into a lot of languages. They just don't have that concept. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure we have that in Bulgaria, for example. But but just listening to you, I think it's, uh, you know, being somebody who's kind of following your steps in many ways. Uh, it's it's hard to to call myself, you know, like. People call me a productivity coach or consultant, and people are like, yeah, uh, productivity, it should be somebody really boring, just talking about how can we be more efficient. And 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 we have these talks about productivity, and it's like, it's not just about how to make the process more efficient. It's actually about creating this space. It's about living intentionally. It's about, the, you know, the core thing of it is creating clarity. What sure. are the things that I actually want? And then, and then how can I be appropriately engaged while I'm actually doing these things? And, you know, a lot of that story on back to your point about spirituality and with a small S is what this does is it helps create that clear space. What you do with that clear space is up to you. But I absolutely guarantee you, if you captured stuff that has your attention, get it out of your head in some sort of trusted bucket and then go through all of that, decide action steps you need to take, outcomes you need to commit to and have some organization that reminds you of those outcomes, those actions, as well as your reference material and whatever else you need to organize. And then you step back and have some regular reflection process that looks at all the projects you have, the action steps you might want to do. I guarantee you that that clearer space is going to allow you to then do whatever you want to do with clearer space. I've worked with a lot of executives that suddenly it gave them a lot more idea of being more strategic on a day-to-day -day basis instead of down in the weeds so tightly on an hour-to-hour basis. They could see a longer horizon, and then that helped them be prioritized and make better decisions. I have a lot of people that are huge champions of my stuff that are in the, quote, creative professions, actors, musicians, artists, and whatever. They said, wow, once I got the GTD stuff, it gave me more freedom to have creative ideas and not lose those ideas and be able to then take advantage of those as I had them. Um, and, and just being present. You know, I worked with the head of the World Bank a, a few years ago and, you know, his basic issue was, David, when I go home with my young kids on the weekend, I don't want to take the World Bank with me. So his idea was, I, I just want to be clear about all that and be able to leave that where it needs to be so I could do that. Now, if you want to call that spiritual, I just call that just having a better life, you know, and being, I mean, to your point in terms of what you guys are doing, you know, having a more um, value laden life, 
but I don't tell you what your values are. I'm just going to help you get clear so you find out what they are. And it's a lot clearer to you how to move on those appropriately. That makes sense? You know, you, it definitely does. And, and you shared the one secret, but I want to ask you to share another secret, if, if you may. What do you do when you meet some of these extremely overwhelmed, busy professionals, executives, world leaders? What are the, some of the first things that you do before you start working with somebody? Well, I find out what their issues are, what's got their attention. Interestingly, the higher up you go in terms of people's hierarchy of their sophistication and their professionalism, usually they're the thing that have got them. A lot of them are pretty good about vision and purpose and their values. That's why they got them there. And they, you know, they're, they're, they're following their intuitive hunches about, you know, whatever they're doing, whatever they're building and whatever they're managing and whatever they're in charge of, for sure. Their biggest issues are down at more of the ground level and more at the mundane ordinariness. What do I do? I wake up with million dollar ideas and I don't know who the hell to give them to or how to track it. And when I give it to them, and that's oftentimes what their issues are is they don't have a really good personal system to manage the details of their life that they're creating. Now, a lot of them pretend, well, I don't want to have to manage details. I hire people to do that. Yeah, right. You still have to manage the details about who you hire to do what <laughs> and whether you care about what they produce or not. So you're not going to get rid of the necessity to still manage the ordinary mundane aspects of your life. And a lot of the, that's why a lot of the sort of it's a kind of a false image, but a lot of the popular image of GTD is it's down in the, in the ordinary stuff. It doesn't deal with all the bigger stuff. Wrong. If the bigger stuff is what's got your attention, that's what we deal with. Hey, Stoyan, you're worried about your life purpose? Fabulous. What's your best guess? You know, about what you think it is? Fabulous. Uh, everything in alignment with that? Oh, not? Hmm. So what's your next action? What do you need to do to make sure you line up to all that? So... <laughs> You know, GTD is not allergic to any of the higher horizon stuff. As a matter of fact, it's just that most people aren't ready to, to deal with that. If I ask anybody watching this right now to write down the 20 things that have most have your attention right now. And you, you know, any of you watching this got a pen and paper, you know, like me, by the way, <laughs> you know, pen and paper right here, right? Just take the 20 seconds while you're kind of listening to me and story and write down the top at least 10 things that have your attention. Now, I'd be very surprised if any of you wrote down, fulfill your destiny as a human spirit on the planet. You probably wrote down cat food, you know, or babysitter or vice president or divorce or adopt, or I don't know, God, you know, if you were even willing to get to that level of subtlety, probably not. You're probably going to be the washing machine broke. We got to fix that. Oh, geez. You know, I got to get tires on my car. Wow. I got to get ready for spring because it's going to be you know. <laughs> So see what GTD does is it deals with where you are, not with where you should be. Because quite frankly, you know where you should be, but you can't get it yet if you're not clear. So we just help you get clear. Whatever you need to do to get clear. What's got your attention started? Why does it have your attention? Because you haven't yet made the appropriate decisions about what you need to do about it, if anything, or park the results in some place or person you trust. That's why. So that's all we do. So I don't give any content. I give a process. 
And do you find that uh, a lot of people at that uh, high level positions and when they complain about, I'm so overwhelmed, I'm so busy, part of the reason or big part of the reason is that they haven't taken the time in creating a space to actually organize all those things that are bothering them, all the projects, tasks, um, desires, Great. and so on and so forth. Exactly. Exactly. And interestingly enough, when I really get to spend time with the really senior people, the thing they guess what they have the most attention on their personal life. Because a lot of them have managed their professional life because they that's what got them there. They do that well, they've got the right committees, they've got the right staff or well, never have the right staff, but they <laughs> but they've gotten their, themselves to that place. But if you really spend time with them, oh my God, how do I handle my investments? Oh my God, how my parents, I got to deal, deal with how do we manage? Oh, and this second piece of property I got, oh, Jesus. And it's their personal life that they've let go to hell in the handbasket, as we say. And that oftentimes that needs to get cleared up so that they have more attention. Otherwise it's grabbing, it's sucking wind out of their sails. So you only have so much cognitive real estate, right? You only have so much room, it's not infinite. And so if you are still thinking, I need cat food, I need cat food, I need cat food, you're inappropriately engaged with your cat and cat food's taking up a whole lot more of your cognitive real estate than it should. So that's why a little bit of a counterintuitive thing about GTD is that we engage with, with even the most mundane stuff, because if you don't give appropriate attention to anything that has your attention, it will take more of your attention than it deserves. So why is cat food taking up more than one thought? Right? That's shame on you, you know, or, you know, come on, inefficient. So, so you need to be... You need to be you need to be equally responsible to yourself and accountable to yourself to handle the small things as well as the big thing. How is I'm very curious uh, based on that and and I have my own system inspired in many ways from GTD and and, and other great uh, methodologies uh, of organizing my own days. Uh, similarly to what you say, I. I like to do it in the evening because I don't want to use any of my mental capacity in the morning to try to think about what should I do and where should I put this because I don't want to use this decision-making power. I want to use it on solving problems, on, on being present and so on and so forth. But I'm actually curious, how does the day of David Allen look like? You know, How do you manage your own workflow and life today? Well, I'm, I'm kind of like you. Uh, my day starts the night before. I just glance at what is the hard landscape, you know, tomorrow. Meaning hard landscape. Meaning my my calendar tells me external commitments I've made that I need to keep, or I screw up relationships and so forth. If I weren't here with you at this time, you know, I don't like the results of that. You know, so I like to make sure I keep those agreements. So I and I look at all that so I know how long I could sleep. It turns out I usually sleep longer than I did this morning, but you know, you're kind of early on my game. And so I say, okay, well, that, that's fine. So I got up and was willing to take our two dogs out, you know, to pee and poop, you know, which we do in the morning, uh, a, little, a little bit earlier, but, but I saw that the night before. So again, to your point, I didn't have to worry about so much, you know, what do I need to think about tomorrow? I just need to know where I have to be and doing what. I don't decide what to do aside from any of those external commitments until that time. 
because God knows how I'm going to feel, what's going to be different or whatever. I just have the total inventory of options available to me in my system so that I'm a freedom junkie guy. You know, I plan as little as I get by with. I only plan what I have to, to get it off my mind. Otherwise, I like to be free, spontaneous, follow my intuitive hunches. To me, that's where my success, if you call it success, is, has come from, just being willing to listen to that sort of inner voice. But I can't listen to that inner voice if I'm, if I'm too constrained. So my whole system, you know, people, it's funny, people's image of me, they say, God, I think you're, you're probably the most buttoned down type A, anal retentive, you know, organized kind of person. And they meet me and they go, God, you're nothing like that. <laughs> go, yeah, true. That, because the, the way I am actually is the, the driver of what I came up with so I can stay this way <laughs> and still afford my, you know, where I live and afford my lifestyle. So, you know, to me, it's all about what do I need to do to get free to be able to do that? So it comes back again. So if you say my day, you know, yeah, I've got some standard rituals. I wake up, I drink, a, I take the puppies out for, you know, as required. I, uh, I drink a glass of lemon water to cleanse my system. My wife and I share a, a French bottle, French press, you know, wonderful coffee, you know, while I read the New York Times front page, as well as the Dutch News front page. And then play a few words with games, Scrabble with you know, friends around the world, just to get my brain sort of teased up and running again. And then I do what I feel like doing. So, sounds fun. When uh, when I read the, there was a quote uh, somewhere I read by you. Your your mind is not about. It's about creating ideas, not storing them. It was something around these lines. Uh, yeah. And I'm just imagining, I just imagine David Allen just going around with one of these and just uh, an idea comes and just immediately writes it down. It's not the, <laughs> the actually close to the truth. Like uh, the truth. whenever an idea I mean, comes to you, you try to put it into your system. Boom. In my pocket. Right. So it's always with you. You come up with always, some good idea, you get it out of your head and you're feeling more free. Yeah, and I can do that if I'm sitting at my desk, this is a little bit has a little bit more room, you know, but a pen is right. God knows when lightning is gonna strike. I just bought a remarkable, by the way, which is a fascinating tool. You know, that's where you can kind of write on this. I'm just exploring it. I don't know how much it's gonna be, but we just bought an apartment, so I'm doing some design ideas in here if I get those. So having having instruments around. So I can capture whatever ideas at whatever level. I also, you know, sort of recreated a journal in here, you know, and I, I've kept journals for whatever. So there's lots of ways to externalize thinking. I just need to make sure I have whatever tools I want, you know, to do that. And externalizing could be, you know, I'm just learning to play the flute again. I learned it 30 years ago, kind of dropped it and I'm kind of pull that back. Uh, I'm learning to paint. So these are mine that you see back here. And so I, you know, have a canvas out in front of me so there could be a lot of ways to capture anything that may show up you know whether it's a thought whether it's an idea or whether it's a uh, need to got to would like to any of those i just have all the tools that, that are, allow me to just you know <laughs> it's funny you know story and i did it i was doing a seminar years ago in boston public seminar and i was you know teaching this stuff you know versus was and i had a woman come up to me she's oh my god david do you know what this is? I said, what is this? She said, distributed cognition. 
well, she was a senior, you know, uh, psychologist, researcher, whatever. And then back then was just the early days of, of discovering what distributed cognition means. I mean, do you mean write it down? They said, well, that's another way to say it. <laughs> and you know what she called this? It's a cognitive artifact. <laughs> mm, okay, well, okay, you want to create some sort of vocabulary around that, that's fine. But we laugh, but that's been now in the last 15 years, a major area of research in terms of the cognitive capabilities we have. And I discovered this experientially when I wrote Getting Things Done, that your head's just a crappy office. And now in the last 10 years, just read any of the books in terms of cognitive research, and you'll, you'll, you'll they, they just validated <laughs> what I said. Your head can hold about four things well, you know, in terms of remembering, reminding, prioritizing, and managing relationships. But any more than four, you start to then be driven by latest and loudest and not strategic, creative intelligence. So the whole idea is, is to get, get your brain free to do what it does. By the way, any of you watching this, think about your bank account or your telephone numbers or any kind of string of numbers out there, how do they batch them? Right? These are three or four. Like any more than four, you know, forget it. But you can do four. I, I use Rabobank here in, the, in Amsterdam and every one of my accounts and every one of those things is in grouped of four batches in terms of my icons about what I need to type in or whatever. I can remember 5863 or 1324 but one, three, two, four, five, I'm done. <laughs> so your brain did not evolve to actually manage a whole lot of stuff. It's great for having the ideas, but not for trying to hang on to them and manage a relationship between them. That's where the externalized system becomes critical. I love this. I love this. And since we have a lot of uh, listeners, I just want to give them a shout out uh, since they've been engaging quite a bit. So, uh, Veselin says, excited to today's episode. Loretta says, very unconventional story of David. Uh, we have a LinkedIn user saying, you're a great listener and interviewer, Stoyan. Thank you, uh, LinkedIn user. Uh, Mikhail says, fully present, love it. I believe in the same idea. Then 100% with you on this, I guess one of the ideas you shared. Uh, Austin says productivity equals producing what you want whilst being present. Great takeaway. And Loretta says again, productivity, achieving internal desire, a new insight for her. Mihaela says clarity. Yes, Austin is back with freedom is the currency of success. Uh, then somebody is tagging more people to watch. Austin is back with love to see the remarkable in action. Uh, Yeva says good day to you, Stoyan and David. Amazing interview. You have done so much. What would you like to be remembered for? Let's take this question, David. What would you like to be remembered for? That we move the planet forward to analyzing problems as projects. That you're not, you're not going to elaborate? <laughs> well, okay. Elaboration just says, look, that just puts you in the driver's seat. Stop complaining and stop being a victim. You don't like it, either change it or accept it. That's a huge milestone in terms of self-development, by the way. You're willing to say, let me get in the driver's seat of my life. If we could have the world in the driver's seat of its life, really. See, most of the negative things that show up out there, quite frankly, are people's out of people's insecurities and their own personal fears, their own lack of self-confidence, 
They're trying to compensate for all of that. The lack of control. You know, control is the huge, huge human addiction. People are killing themselves and each other right now just to maintain or achieve a sense of psychological control. It's that powerful a driver of what to do. So if we can give people a sense of having more control about their life, I don't care how, this is not about making your life easy. Come on, if it were easy, you'd never grow, you'd never expand, you'd never, you'd never really you know, challenge yourself to do what you're here to do on the planet. So you don't, it's not about making life easy. It's about putting you in the driver's seat instead of being the victim of it. And as bad as that can be, meaning as challenging as the pandemic could be for you or a life-threatening disease or whatever, you know, I'm not saying this is easy, guys. Again, I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm not. I'm just letting you know you're either on the victim side of that or you're on the I'm in the driver's seat side of that. And if we could change the world into that consciousness, and that's, you know, my wife and I and, and our work here is really about that. How do we create a, a, a planet where people perceive problems as projects? And, and this whole platform, the Leaders Who Care, is, is also part of the reason we created it, is to bring leaders like yourself that in one way or another care for creating a, a huge positive uh, impact and, and sort of to unite people on this spirit, this energy. Um, what I'm interested and curious to know is, is there any specific type of problems that, that you're excited about solving? Uh, today <laughs> how do we do what i just said <laughs> that's my that's kind of my biggest issue right now it's like how do we get the world into that state of mind and how do we reach what i have uncovered and i just been given been given the, the grace to have uncovered something that allowed me to make a career out of doing something that does nothing but improve people's conditions you, you can implement any part of my methodology and it will improve your condition if you just keep a notepad by your bed you'll sleep better if you just make a next action decision about something sooner than you might otherwise do it you'll find yourself more in your own driver's seat so there's nothing that hurts about my methodology and it's totally um so you know my biggest challenge is to find how many people would love to find this but don't know about it yet so that was where when we decided to try to scale this thing, and I don't, didn't know how to do that. So we had to find partners that helped us try to figure out how to build a global, you know, uh, basically a, a, a global network of people that we can certify as be trainers and coaches, you know, about this work to get it to as many people as we can. We're reaching about 3,000 people a week or a month right now in terms of people going through actual trainings that, through our partners, you know, and coaching, you know, about this. So that's a small, <laughs> tiny, small, still population out there in terms of how many people in the world would really like to know about this. So anybody listening out there right now, if you hear about this and want to share that with anybody that you would like to have them improve their life and have more freedom, please do something to share this stuff. Give them my book, have them turn them on to this, go to our website, find out who their coaches and trainers are in your countries. Uh, and there's a great network of folks, by the way, you know, that we have that have been attracted to doing this work. And that's made made it their life, their life work to, to do this as well, you know, with me. So that's I, all I, I can wanna, say. I, think, right now. I, I just want to take the time here to to, to really say uh, we're not done with the interview, obviously, but like to say thank you for for this creating this uh, exceptional impact. You say it's a the tiny middle 
minor impact, but I, I would say it's actually quite a quite a huge effect when it comes to you impact one person. I, I really love this idea of let's take it one person at a time. If people are happy, if people are free, they want to do good stuff, most likely. So if we can touch more people, if we can reach more people, if we can spread this message, if we can help people to unite and to build stuff instead of argue about things, then we are going to slowly but consistently build a better world. Indeed. So, and that's why, by the way, you know, I know you haven't brought up the topic, but that's why, you know, I met Brian Robertson, you know, 10 years ago and we implemented holacracy in our company, you know, which is basically how do you create mind like water? How do you create a clarity inside of an organization, not just with individuals? Because as soon as you could be clear, Stallion, and I could be clear, but you and I get together about some sort of thing we want to do together, that increases by exponentially the complexity about how do we stay clear? How do we stay clear about what you agreed to, what I agreed to, what you're expecting of me, what I'm expecting of you, how we're managing that relationship? And so moving this into an organizational context takes it to a whole new dimension. It's the same principles. What's got the attention of the organization? What's got the attention of our relationship? You know, gee, dear, should we get divorced or not? Should we adopt or not? See, most people are not willing to acknowledge those kinds of things that are got their attention and make projects about them. They say, that's a problem. I say, what's your project? What would you like to have true about your relationship? Oh, I'd really like to have us both be clear and happy with how we've rearranged our relationship. Ah, good outcome. Yay, fine. What's the next step? Wait, what do you need to do? A conversation, a research, talk to a friend, draft ideas. So, you know, the, the subtlety of what this is gets to a lot of the subtlety of what creates a whole lot of the stress and complexity and negativity, frankly, in relationships. You know, what if our government said, gee, what's the, what's the issue right now? What would we like as a final outcome? Great, what's the next step? Who's gonna do what? I know to some degree, everybody's already doing that to some degree, you know, understood. You wouldn't, that's why the strange paradox about this is GTD is not about behaviors people are unfamiliar with. Everybody knows how to write things down. Everybody knows how to decide, what am I gonna do about that? Everybody knows how to think about, hmm, what am I really trying to ultimately produce that I can mark off as done about this? So it's, but it's a cognitive muscle you need to train. Most people aren't used to thinking about that, about stuff that has their attention. They're, the biggest issue still on is people's addiction to ambient anxiety. Ambient anxiety. You're willing to tolerate waking up in the morning or waking up at night thinking about something you can't do anything about. I'm not. Is I'm not willing to tolerate that. So I do what I need to do to make sure that doesn't happen. But your willingness to tolerate that, you're willing to tolerate how many times do we need to think about, should we get divorced? Should we adopt? Should we, or should I hire a vice president? Should we, you know, what are we gonna do about our finances given the pandemic and what that's, what's happened to our business? Right, I don't say these are easy. I'm just saying you need to be conscious about what these things are and then what your desired outcome is and then what your action step is that you need to take. So this is tough stuff. That's why it's a martial art back to your initial you know, sort of comments about all that. Is that it's really about, 
Is this really addiction that we have? Addiction to addiction means anything you're willing to tolerate and not change. How long will you go without taking a shower, Stoyan? How long will you go without? How long will you go without brushing your teeth? Right. Those are you could call them addiction. There's nothing. Addiction is not bad. It just says that's something I'm used to. It's a habit I'm in. If I don't get the results of that, I'm uncomfortable, and so therefore I need to engage in the activity to get me back to what I'm comfortable with. You brush your teeth as often as you need to brush your teeth. You take a shower as often as you need to take your shower. I just do a weekly review and keep my head clear as often as I need to to keep my head clear. Same thing. It's just more subtle, but it's just, it's just mechanic. It's mechanically the same thing. So if yeah. you're willing to tolerate, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do about. It. I don't know what I'm going to do. About it. I don't know what I'm going to do about what. Well, what would you like to have true? Hmm. Oh, I guess I want to have that happen. Fabulous. What's your next step? Oh, God. I guess I need to call my sister. Oh, you know, I don't search the web about, right? And then if you don't do those immediately, write them down somewhere that you know you'll see those things to, as a reminder. And suddenly these even tough things are off your mind. It's not that they're handled. You just now appropriately engaging with your engagement with them. I just discovered that algorithm, that formula about what to do. So, by the way, you never end how much better you get at this. By the way, how good can you get at cooking spaghetti? How good can you get at playing the flute? How good can you get at being a parent? How good can you be? How good can you get starting at being an interviewer? Right? So there's no end to these things. So how good can you get at managing the flow of your life's commitments and your work so that you stay on top of it, stay clear? And the clearer you get, the more you're going to potentially stress yourself out because the more inspired stuff you're going to take on. So especially if you have people watching you and in the story that you're doing here that care about things in life and care about quality and care about stuff, the clearer you get, the more you're likely to stress yourself out by adding even more stuff that you think you want to do and want to manage. And I go, great, that's fabulous. But you, that then that's why <laughs> the people most attracted to what I do are the people who need it the least. They're already the most aspirational, positively focused, organizationally focused. They already know they create a lot of value. They just have up to here. Then they've got no more room. And so I'm just, I just provided a model to give them more room to be able to do that even bigger and better and still uh, not have the stress. I love that. And I love the fact that you mentioned it's, it's about building a cognitive muscle because as going to the gym, the first time you go to the gym, you're not really that good. You, you don't know, you may be playing around with the different, but then you do it once and you have a little win and you do it again, you do it again. And at some point you, you create this ability to, to take a pause before you reactively take an action. And then you actually remain, or at least do not lose so much time uh, as you will otherwise into being really focused on the thing that matters most in this specific moment. So I just really yep. love that. But David, I want to bring you, we have a lot of listeners who are in the 20s or 30s. So I, I just want to bring you back to, if you can go back to when you were 25 years old, 
what would be your advice to the 25 years old version of yourself? Keep going. I have no regrets about my life. Come on. I live a fabulous life and I wouldn't, you know, you, you can't denigrate or you can't undo any of the rungs of the ladder that got you there. So, you know, relative to now, come on, I'm 75, you know, you know, at 25, I go 50 years ago. Yeah. Probably the only advice I would give myself is relax more, David. You know, uh, pay more attention to what you want as opposed to what you think other people want you to want. So, would you, would you, what would be, would be advice to to the young leaders out there? Like, I think that's a very important point, and many people are struggling in this age specifically, trying to have it all figure out. You know, at the age of 18, for example, oh, but I haven't found my purpose in this and that. So what would be some some advices? You're also working with a lot of younger people as well, uh, based on the challenges that you see that they are going through. What would you tell to these young leaders that are ambitious, that want to go places, that want to, that are trying to find their place in life, basically? Yeah. I'd say be willing to embarrass yourself with the fantasy, the most grand fantasy of who you could be and how you could do it. You want to be the great rock guitarist? You want to be, you want to, you know, run the world? You want to, I don't know, be the most well-known surgeon, you know, on the planet? I don't know. Just give yourself permission. Again, embarrass yourself. <laughs> you don't have to tell anybody. But be willing inside of yourself to say, if I if I could have it the way coolest thing it could ever be, here's what I think I might love to do. Right, and then step back and ask yourself, what experience internally do you think that would give you, if you did that or had that? Oh, I'd have a sense of control or power or freedom or expression or connectedness with the world great acknowledge what those are and then and by the way it might wouldn't hurt to write them down and then say look around you right now in terms of the opportunities available to you in your current world what do you think if you took advantage of that opportunity would give you more of those kinds of experiences and then go don't wait for the perfect one Look for the best one that's going to give you what you think would most give you a sense of confidence, a sense of control, or a sense of impact, or a sense of whatever. Don't wait for perfect. Just get going. That was my biggest mistake probably back then was I waited for the perfect job. That's why I had a lot of imperfect jobs. <laughs> I didn't, didn't see the perfect one. Didn't know what I wanted to do. I took a lot of imperfect jobs. And then I had a great friend who coached me wonderfully. He said, David, what's your fantasy? I said, be president of the United States. He said, well, what do you think that would give you? I said, well, I think I have some valuable stuff I want to share with people that would give me people's attention. I said, great, David, what do you think you could do right now that would get you more of people's attention? And I went, got it. And I never looked back. So you never, you know, many of my goals I never achieved. I just set a goal. I said, mm, well, that kind of what I want to do. And I started moving toward it. I got halfway to it and I went, oh my God, wait a minute. 
that's really more of what I want. Not that. I changed course. I never got the first thing, but I would never have seen that second thing had I not moved toward the first one. So if any of you know the old Tom Cruise movie, you know, Top Gun, you know, where his commander says, engage, engage, because he's frozen, he's frozen, he's got engage, Maverick, engage, engage. So <laughs> to some degree, that's that's my coaching to the millennials, engage. But engage towards something that you think is going to give you the internal result that your fantasy you think will give you. Not what your parents think that this will bring you somewhere, but what you personally feel like this is the right thing to do at this very moment. And I, I love that you're talking about the fact that you will not always achieve your goals. That's in, that's impossible. And and also having the ability to deal with the setbacks, because sometimes you will not achieve it. You might want it very much, but but you'll still learn a lot. You meet people. And how do you know that this is not going to be actually bringing you on a journey that will end up in something even better than what you wanted? Well, um, what I say, Stoyan, is the goal, the future never happens. Have you ever noticed? It's always today. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, God, it's today again. <laughs> the future never happens. But it's a wonderful illusion. Because when you imagine a, a potentially positive future, it changes how you perceive today. It changes your perception and your activities today based upon that picture. But then be willing to undo the picture whenever you want. People say, should I have my life purpose perfect? I go, no, I have a working hypothesis. <laughs> At least for today, here's what I think I'm doing. And then when you get better data, by the way, I'm a lot smarter than I was two weeks ago. So I'm glad we didn't get interviewed two weeks ago because I'm, I'm two I'm two weeks smarter than I was then. I'll have a better goal today than I would have two weeks ago. So I think people need to acknowledge the reality of who they are right now and then use the future as simply a way to frame possibilities that then allow them to then see things differently, perceive things differently. And as they see and perceive things differently, they may then change their goal. So don't get hung up on any goals. I hope you guys are really embracing what uh, what David has been sharing with us today. Um, David, one one thing um, that's also kind of interesting is you, you mentioned a few times being engaged, being appropriately engaged. And uh, a lot of it comes with, you know, we, we're in the podcast of the leaders who care. It comes with starting with yourself, with self-care. And obviously the GTD is providing a lot of uh, suggestions uh, of what we can do to, to self-care as well. But what do you personally do to make sure that you're fully present, you're engaged? Like, do you have any meditation practices? Do you journal? Do you have some uh, quirky uh, sort of routine going to the sauna three times a week? Like, what do you do to, to be at the top of your game? I go for walks regularly in the park with my dogs and my wife. I, me I meditate, I drink, um, I pay attention to what has my attention, I give myself plenty of opportunity to express in a, in a kind of creative thoughts that I have. You know, come on, if you know what you're doing and you know, it's a great time to be alive, my God, you know, we're talking to each other you know, globally. So it's a, it's a wonderful world. So 
uh, I do all of those things, try to eat well. Uh, I don't exercise a lot. Come on, 75, you know, I ride my bike and, you know, I don't, Catherine and I don't have cars. We're in Amsterdam, the city of bikes anyway, and go, go for plenty of walks. You know, I, ex I do a few aerob uh, anaerobic exercises before I take a shower. You know, those are all things to kind of just get me present. If nothing else, just focus on my breathing for a few minutes. Good old mindfulness stuff. So, you know, I do any and all of that kind of whatever whatever rings my bell at the moment. Yes, and I love the the fact that you're bringing spontaneity a lot into the the whole system of things. Um, I'm also curious to hear the. We spoke a lot about also executives, uh, business leadership. What can we do? to spread the care culture in organizations and generally around the world, what more can we do to, to spread this care culture? Improve your processes so that the organization doesn't get wired up around incomplete things, unclear agreements with each other, unclear roles and accountabilities. That'll screw up the love culture faster than anything. So I'm not about, it's not about content so much. I know that you're saying, well, we, you know, we want to sort of stop going after the material world. I understand. But if you want the freedom to be loving with each other, loving with each other doesn't create a good business. And it doesn't create a good, it, it, you know, creates a nice environment to be in. But if you and I disagree about something, I don't care how much I love you. That's going to get in the way of our ability to be able to express that and to be able to use that to then leverage our relationships with each other. Right. So I need to get clear about what you agree to. What do I agree to? See, that was a big mistake that I made, you know, before I discovered holacracy as a way to sort of think about roles and accountabilities and making sure those were clear with each other. So it gave me the freedom and the space to then be loving or fun or whatever we wanted to do as a culture. But don't think that that as a culture is going to create your best processes. And with unclear processes and unclear agreements about roles and accountabilities and outcomes and so forth and ways to track that and ways to people feel comfortable about their agreements with themselves and with each other. You know, I don't care how much you love each other. You still want to shoot each other at the end of the day. Sorry, I'm a little cranky and direct, but that's the truth. So if you want to say what's the best thing that's going to improve the culture is improve your processes to make sure that those things are clear so they don't get in the way of your personal relationships. And I, and I think there is a sweet spot you can be kind, you can be nice to each other, you can still be accountable and responsible and have good processes. And actually that creates the real good culture. Um, so a final question before we get into, you know, just kind of like the wrap up. How do you see, what is your vision for the future? Uh, you know, with the whole humanity have gone through a very interesting uh, 11, 12 months and uh, we are now in an interesting situation, but what is your positive vision for the future? Well, I think all the last 12 months have done is speed up exponentially what was happening anyway. People working virtually, people working by themselves, for themselves, that then engage on a contractual basis with their, you know, with companies and with projects and so forth. So that just sped up hugely. And so we've become a much more global world, which I think is cool. So the silver lining, you know, in all this is that we're much more aware of the world, much more aware of the, the need to cooperate, much more aware of how I need to manage myself so that 
if I don't have the if I don't have the structure to walk into an office where it sort of makes it easy for me to be told what to do and to do it, I now have to do that by myself. You know, welcome to you know self management. It just sped that up tremendously. You know, so that's the good news. You know about what all this is, and I have no idea what it might look like. You know, twelve months from now, I just know there are a lot of people. You know, who was it? Amazon, somebody, no, one of the big companies, Google, said how many more people now can work from home fully, full-time, as opposed to needing to come into some sort of an office. You don't get rid of that need, I think, for personal interaction and face-to-face -face interaction, but it's certainly been diminished hugely. And a lot of people are finding out, hmm, <laughs> that's kind of cool. I actually get more work done. A lot of people are getting less work done because they're now unstructured and their kids are bothering them 24 seven and they don't get commute time. So there's a lot of stress happening out there because people are having to live by themselves, you know, and, and not have a structure to give them the confidence that they don't have to worry about that. And then they, you know, a lot of people sort of in a, a kind of the old style, I go to work, I leave personal life at home. I come back from work, I leave work at home. Nobody ever really did that anyway in terms of their heads, but the, I understand that the difference between that, that that's disappeared. So, you know, trying to figure out how do I create my own boundaries? How do I create my own space when I'm in a virtual world and I have all these other things around me that are 24 seven available to me and pulling on my time and attention, how do I manage that? So, you know, it's a learning process. So again, don't know, I have no idea. I couldn't predict you what it's going to look like 12 months from now at all. Thank you so much, David, for being with us today, for sharing all this advice and insights. Uh, those of you watching, obviously, go check out Getting Things Done, GTD, uh, you know, get the book, get the training program. David, any other place people should go and check out more about uh, GTD? Yeah, gettingthingsdone.com. Wherever you are in the world, if you go to gettingthingsdone.com and then click on training and coaching, and then type in your country, you'll see our certified trainers, licensees, and coaches in that country that, that, that provide those services. If you want to do a much deeper dive, and I highly recommend that. They're, good, they're great folks. Thank you so much, David, for your time. And uh, have a wonderful day in Amsterdam. Thank you, for everyone, for watching. And see you for the next episode at The Leaders Who Care. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Find out more about the leaders who care across the main social media channels and help us spread the care culture in your own community, first by taking care of yourself and then of others around you. It all starts with one person, one act of kindness. What is one thing you can do today to make your environment better? Stay inspired and stay caring. See you next time.